Hello and welcome to Cloud Automation Weekly. My name is Thorsten Höger and I'm here to talk about automating your AWS cloud infrastructure. Today I'm joined by Matt Coulter to talk about cloud automation in big enterprises. Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me on today. For folks who are just meeting you for the first time, I cannot reasonably think of anybody, but for folks who meet you for the first time, can you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So yeah, my name is Matt Coulter. I am a senior architect working for Liberty Mutual. And you can probably tell by the accent, I'm out of Belfast, Northern Ireland. And I've spent the past couple of years working specifically to try and create the environment to enable our developers to be the best versions of themselves. And that's involved serverless-first development, AWS CDK. And a lot of that is spilled out into open source and building communities outside of Liberty Mutual. So that's that's where you could see me as an AWS hero, as well as organizer of the Belfast AWS meetup and one of the organizers of CDK Day. And the inventor of CDK Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for being here. So as I said, you're um, working in, in a big enterprise. So I, I assume things are different in enterprises than yeah, using automation or using the cloud in a startup. Yeah. So anytime I talk to anyone about how we build things, I always say the word compliance a lot, maybe eight or nine times a sentence. And it's because in an enterprise, you well, from what I've been told about startups, because I have extensive enterprise, but what I've been told about startups, it's more you're allowed to jump into the AWS console. You can click about, you can build infrastructure that isn't necessarily repeatable. Whereas everything we do has to have audit trails and logs and be locked down to specific people. So if you want to touch AWS, you're using a build pipeline if it's going to go to production. And that whole build pipeline is locked down by specific rules of who's allowed to do deployments, who's allowed to approve any crazy IAM rules. IAM rules have to be locked down to permission boundaries. Everything has to be tagged so that we know who's spending what kind of money and what account. So it's uh, it's actually, when you look at it, it's actually incredibly awesome when you see the whole thing moving together. Because Liberty has spent significant investment over the past 10 years to build all of the pieces we have. And so it looks so easy. If you come in today, you can come in and just click and be like, I want to create a new serverless project that's API Gateway, Lambda, DynamoDB. And you'll be up and running with all of the compliance in seconds. So you don't know that all of the stuff has would have slowed you down. So we could potentially be faster than a startup, but you can't. If you try to do it different than those guardrails, it's where you'll probably end up having some conversations. Okay, yeah, and it sounds, it's easy because it's automated. Yes, everything Ooh. has to be automated. Like we, manual processes do not fly in an enterprise because they're not repeatable. They're not even repeatable by the first person. So we, we look to try and either automate everything with one click or for the manual processes, now what we're doing is like there's not that many, but best practices for things like if you want to do a threat model, which you're not automating a threat model, but there's still a process. We're doing things like creating golden paths that are defined. This is the process that you have to follow. So it's all very structured. Yeah, and it's always when people talk about, yeah, we don't need automation. I say, okay, let's do a challenge. I will give you an architecture. You deploy it manually and one week later do it again and then we will compare it. If it's the same, we don't argue anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to take up this challenge. <laughs> no, because I used to be the guy on my team that set up the build pipelines, for instance, just because no one else wanted to do it. And we had microservices. So the team maybe owned 30 or 40 microservices, and I did them all. And I am telling you, no two are identical, <laughs> just because it wasn't automated at the time. 
Whereas now, all our build pipelines are created through infrastructure as code. So nobody needs to care about that anymore. And that is the beauty of it. Yeah, definitely. So it's a very important thing, as you said, it's to be repeatable. It's to be able to build the same infrastructure multiple times. So one is for different stages of the same microservice. And as you said, multiple microservices need to have some kind of similar infrastructure. Yeah. And the other thing I've noticed as well, we always talked about like reuse and inner source and being able to share solutions. And when everything was done by hand, it was like, oh, I wish I could have used their library, but we coded it different so it won't work. Whereas now you're able to go and we use GitHub now. So you're able to jump into GitHub and go, oh, they've already implemented a version of what I need. Awesome. I can just reuse that. And because it's all automated, it's actually ridiculously easy to just find and reuse solutions across the company. I'm talking about compliance, uh, which is also for me a big topic because I'm advising banks in Germany, which is some kind of, yeah, they also talk about compliance from time to time. So how do you automate this? Because I think there's different approaches like forcing people to do some things the way that you want them to do or auto-remediating things they configure, which has other impacts. So what approach are you going with? So Liberty Mutual, if anybody wants to know more about what we've built, there is a reinforced talk from a couple of years ago that you can look up for Liberty Mutual Radar. And this is a tool that was built. We It's it's all based all the configuration, all the compliance is written in rules. And then anything that gets deployed, post-deploy, all those events are checked instantly. And if something's not compliant, it's just deleted. We There's no attempt to auto-remediate because that's where you end up with CloudFormation Drift. It's just that people's architectures go missing. And the because everything has to be done through pipelines, it happens in non-prod or dev long before it's anywhere near production. So it's a case of developers try to do something that's non-compliant and it just doesn't work. And then they get they've got a dashboard that tells them exactly why all of the things were deleted. And it's that's that's our main mechanism for how we deal with compliance. Okay, so so it's not um during deployment that, it, that it's fixed, it's deployed and then deleted and you need to fix it manually. So it's not like having reusable constructs like this is my secure bucket or this is my compliant database or things like that. So we have that side too. Sorry, forgot about that. But yeah, so the one side is what I just mentioned works for any deployment technique. So CloudFormation, CDK, Terraform, whatever. But then inside each of the deployment frameworks, because we don't specify one framework. We let developers choose what is fastest for their team. But inside the likes of AWS CDK, we do have constructs. And those constructs are already pre-configured for all of our compliance. So then what we do is we take it up another level. And we have a tool that you can you can see. We, I talked about at reInvent last year called the Software Accelerator. And what we do is we package those constructs together into a reusable pattern that is fully compliant. So instead of just being the API Gateway construct, you might get API Gateway configured with an authorizer Lambda function talking to either Lambda or DynamoDB or something else that you want. And then that way you start with a fully compliant working infrastructure. And then once you deviate, Radar kicks in and says, okay, that wasn't cool. <laughs> this is why. And then it goes through that process of how we keep people right. Yeah, it sounds great. And it sounds that you can still do things and not having IAM policies that force you to not do anything and have multiple layers of approval to, to, to create a bucket. Yeah, exactly. And it, 
you get less freedom as you go up the environments, you know, for production, there's a lot more checks, but once you're in like sandbox or development, you get significant levels of freedom. But if you want to, so we uh, by default now require IAM permissions boundaries on everything to scope it down. And that's just because unfortunately, given the size of Liberty Mutual and the age, we're not quite at the point of one AWS account per developer yet. That would be 5,000 accounts times how many regions. So we are, we're scoped down to one account per like logical app is what I'm going to call it, like a domain. And uh, within that domain, we didn't like the risk of people being able to write IAM rules that could talk to anything else in that account. So we're scoped down to be like, you can only communicate with things in this deployment by default. And then once you want to change that in non-prod, it's, or in sandbox, it's automatic. But once you want to push that rule up to like production, there is an approval step that somebody goes, yep. That's all right. You're not trying to access customer data in, you know, like America. Okay. So, so you're um, adding permission boundaries to IAM roles, and I, I assume you all, uh, also have uh, service control policies. So there's a, a, a mix to make sure that no access um, happens that you don't want. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. By default, it's to what was deployed together, but you can change it to like permission for anybody who doesn't know about IAM permissions boundaries. There are a way that you can say okay, anything grouped here can only talk to these things. I don't think it's a widely used feature at this point, but it is really good from a compliance perspective if if you can't do that individual accounts per every individual thing. Yeah, it's 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 a hard thing to to really reduce IAM roles inside an account. That That's why having multiple accounts is definitely a, a thing. But as you said, there's a limit where it's manageable. So Yeah, because you get to the point of, again, if... I'll, I'll just share the, with people the pains of multiple accounts because if you are communicating with, I'm just going to call it successful infrastructure that has survived for 50, 60 years that is on-prem, you're going to be communicating with a VPC and sharing those VPC connections across 5,000 accounts just becomes very expensive and unmaintainable. So that's where, believe it or not, if you share a VPC across accounts, you still hit single limits. So it gets complicated and that's where our Account strategy is not as simple as just saying give everyone an account, even though that's what the official advice is. Yeah, it's also about uh, traffic cost because the, the moment, for example, if you connect all VPCs using or all accounts with their own VPCs using a transit gateway, now microservices talking to each other incur traffic costs which they didn't within one account. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it it sounds like really awesome advice, one account per everybody. If you're a startup, perfect. But once you get to Fortune 100 scale, it starts to get complicated. Yeah, and expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a so-called AWS enterprise tax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So talking about architectures, um, I think architecture is an important thing for automation and, and, and vice versa. If you have automation, you can yeah do better and also more complicated and hidden architectures if it's automated, that are in itself better than just, I'm using the simple one. I know it's not the best one, but it's simple to set up. Because if you automate it, you can build in all the things you need, like permission boundaries and things like that. Any others, other advice on, on architectures you see or you want to give? Yeah, architecture is, it's a big area for me because I've, I've had various different relationships with architecture teams through my career. And now I am a, a senior architect. And there's sort of two ways that you can do architecture. Um, one is, this is the exact way that we are going to implement all applications. And if you deviate, you're out of compliance. 
And then the other way is that you try to create the environment where people move the right direction because they see it is the correct and easiest path and the whole thing is paved. But if somebody wants to deviate, that's okay. But they have to bring the learnings back to everybody else. And I think with AWS, it changes that much that you can't set one architecture because then you're just going to say containers because that's the only way you can say it won't change. But if you try to pick a fully serverless architecture, you're going to be constantly having to update to be what is the latest, what is the greatest, what is the cheapest now. And that is why I think it's always good to bring in the AWS well-architected framework and well-architected reviews for the teams because... A lot. I've talked to a few people and they say, but it's just a checkbox exercise because so if anybody doesn't know, the well-architected framework is like the manual for how to build an AWS written by AWS themselves. And it's broken down into the different pillars like security, cost, operational excellence, reliability, performance efficiency, and sustainability. Um, and for each of those different pillars, it's broken down by best practices and guidance. Now, if you go to the AWS console, there is the well-architected tool in there, which allows you to run a well-architected review. But a lot of people expected it to be like, I don't know, an AI or something that smartly looks at your infrastructure and guides you, but it's actually, it has the questions and then you take the answers that apply to you. And then once you get to the end of it, it produces a report. So on face value, a lot of people say to me, what's the value of this? And the value is that I get to have a conversation with that team. So I get to jump in and say, oh, let's look at your architecture diagram. All right, let's look at operational excellence. Let's jump into this question. And then I can have that safe space conversation with the same questions across the whole org. And that's where I can guide them and say, okay, you're going to need to build an API gateway for this and it's going to need to be authorized. So from my perspective, here is a pattern that already works. I don't think you need to deviate. I don't think you need to spin up Spring Boot and Fargate for this. There is a pattern. And that's where I think architecture, instead of being like big A architecture, can come along and be a partner at the table and guide teams as they're building things. Because you can do that review at any stage. You can do it while people have just picked up the story for what they're building. You can do it after the production and you can do it later when the thing's in a steady state. It doesn't matter at what point. It's always got value. Yeah, definitely. I had a workshop with a corporate security team for a customer. And they were happy with the well-architected framework because they get their security reviews in a standardized way with some wording on it. They can understand, they can put to regulators and these reports have some kind of, yeah, it, again, it's, it's compliant. It's not for startups. They can use it, they should use it, but the value is, I think, more for enterprises because they get standardized reports they can use to talk to other people that are checking what they are doing. Yeah, because that's one of the things the compliance team early on were asking, how do we how do we help? Because compliance are not the enemy. You know, compliance are actually the friend of the customer because they're there to make sure that everybody's data stays safe. And the original conversations were, okay, what if you just took the well-architected framework and built all your compliance checks around that? And now we have compliance and developers talking the same language and it's not frustrating anymore. It's It's not even a long meet, which is awesome. I think talking the same language is, is definitely a thing. Um, speaking about talking the same language, it, it's not all not only compliance and, and development, it's also still development on ops. So what, what, what's your take on DevOps as a role in between or as merging devs and ops? <laughs> yeah, 
So uh, again, I, I get classified as DevOps a lot, and I know I'm in the DevOps. My, my organization is now called Secure DevOps, but I have never actually officially been a DevOpser because I've always been someone in the application teams building applications. And the thing I would say is there's been a shift in the past three or four years where it was so complicated to build infrastructure right that you needed to have dedicated teams writing big, long YAML files that weren't changed by development teams. So they would go and say, okay, I need a database. And the DevOps teams would spin one up for them and they would just get the password and consume it. But there's been a shift now with the likes of AWS CDK where you can build constructs that do the same thing and developers can understand it and build on it. So I, I think it's one of those things where DevOps, for a large portion of it, has shifted left to be DevOps genuinely is dev and ops together. Now, there are still parts of it, very complicated parts of it that you need specialists because the the core path of AWS development with all these modern tools can be really, it can seem easy and fun, but you still need the people who are going to set up like all of your boundaries, your checks, your compliance, your pipelines, your pathways, and do your guidance for things. So that's where I see the two interplaying now where Everyday teams are going to take on more infrastructure, which means they're going to take on more liability for the ops side of things. And ops people who want to stay in ops, they're going to push up the value chain a bit and always be doing that very impactful work that is, you know, bigger picture working across dozens of teams instead of maybe just one item. Yeah, that, that's what I had with the database team. Like, what, what what's our future role? And say, yeah, instead of spinning up databases all day, you build constructs that make it easy and reusable for other teams to create databases. But it's not that we don't need you anymore. You still need to put all your knowledge into creating great constructs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not that the people aren't needed. It's just that we need to uh, shift the role so that it's a case of saying, yes, you're awesome, but let's let's shift it from YAML to maybe something that developers want to consume. And I say shift from YAML. There's many awesome YAML solutions that, I should say from a long YAML to a short YAML as well, in case anybody's offended by that. Yeah, just yeah, hiding complexity and having a platform team or whatever you want to call it, having a, a specialist team doing the complicated parts and yeah, shifting the easier parts more into the DevOps realm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because it, I remember there was a point in time where I had a team that had capacity And we wanted to deploy MongoDB on EC2. Terrible idea, but we wanted to do it. And the DevOps team, this was years ago, were so overmaxed because they were doing all these everyday tasks that they didn't have time to investigate this. And it just led to a frustrating situation between the dev team and between the ops team. Whereas the way that would work today is I would build a CDK construct and take it to them and say, this works. What's wrong with this? Can you tell me like what configuration I need to update here? for this to be up to your standard and up to the resiliency. And you'd have that back and forth because you're meeting in the middle. And I think that's the difference. It's not two teams now. It's one team that just has different stages. Yeah. And you were talking about it. It's not only CDK. It's, it's other tools um, too, especially if you want to target different, yeah, target environments. So not, not everything is always on AWS. Mm -hmm. so, what, what's your take on this? Yeah. So... I'll say the word multi-cloud and everyone's ears will, will perk up. Um, so our, our stance on multi-cloud is that we do actually use all of the clouds. I know I talk about AWS a lot, 
but we are on um, AWS, Azure, and GCP, as well as we have some other solutions deployed. And we look at it as we take the best capability from each cloud. So we don't go, we're not 100% all in on one cloud if someone else has a capability that's better for a particular thing. So like SharePoint is better on Azure just because it is, that's their cloud. Um, I'm pretty sure for Kubernetes, GCP is going to be the cloud. It's it's that kind of thing where we don't deploy one app to all of the clouds at the same time, but we carefully choose what capabilities we pick. And that means that you got to talk about, well, what, what dev tools are you going to use? Do you want one developer experience across all of the clouds? Or do you want to pick for each cloud what the best experience is for it? Because people probably aren't crossing all of the clouds. Um, we've gone for in Liberty. We just choose the best tool for that cloud right now. We haven't tried to unify them because I think it would cause a lot of confusion with the developers if we did that right now because we're still we're we're much more advanced with AWS than we are with the others. So if you look at the tools that we're using, I mean AWS CDK, that's something I've talked about a lot. But AWS is in the name. Now there are capabilities growing that I've seen where the likes of Pulumi and Terraform, uh, as well as CDK for Terraform, can pull in an AWS CDK construct. And then once you're in those tools, you can talk to the other clouds and do whatever you want on those. So I would say that AWS CDK isn't a lock-in to AWS anymore, like a lot of people would suggest. Um, but definitely in the other clouds, we're seeing a lot of growth in the likes of Terraform um, because it, it lets you do anything in, in any cloud and write any scripts to do that. Yeah, I think there are um, a lot of interesting things I, I want to pick up. Um, so first thing is, yeah, different approach to, to multi-cloud. So not multi-cloud as I want to move workloads in between clouds every week, but, or create it in a way that I can move it wherever I want, which is not a good idea in my opinion, but having, okay, this is better on GCP, this is better on AWS, or I definitely want to have my Active Directory within the vendor of Active Directory and not build my own Active Directory. <laughs> So yeah. there's a company that's known to know how to operate an Active Directory, and that's Microsoft, and you want to do it there. Yeah, exactly, because the way we've been looking at it is if you build your modern applications as event-driven through you know, domains and bounded contexts, yes, there is lock-in, but there's whatever technology you use, you're locked into it. So refactoring from a fully serverless solution to another cloud's fully serverless solution will be an effort, but it's not impossible. So if we need to do it, we with event-driven solutions, it's just a case of firing the events over and then reacting to them. Yeah, so that's definitely one of the things. Um, and the other thing is about the, the tooling. So you, teams will tend to use one cloud because they have experience there. So even if your whole enterprise with several thousand people will use different cloud providers, it doesn't mean that every developer or every team will use multiple clouds. So I think picking different tools is a good option. So it's not necessarily that just because the networking team is using Terraform to provision their yeah, switches and routers or firewalls doesn't mean that your development teams need to use Terraform to deploy your serverless application. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that was one of the, the early days miscommunications between developers and ops where it was like, why won't developers use Terraform? Why don't they like it? We love it. And it was a case of it just, a lot of people do love Terraform. I'm not criticizing it in any way, but within our organization, it didn't resonate. 
But then as soon as development teams saw AWS CDK, they just were like, oh, and it clicked and, and it was in the right framing for them to get to the cloud. And it doesn't, those two teams never really need to overlap between those two infrastructures for it to matter that they're different. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the, the, the thing. So let's let's put it t- together again for, for people out there. Multi-cloud is a good thing if you pick the best solution from every cloud and not try to move the same workload to every cloud. And even if you're using multi-cloud, doesn't mean that every person has to deal with all the clouds and you don't need a standardized way so every person can do everything because people will still have their experience and their likings in one of the technology. Yes. And the other thing is, and, and it also plays in, into multi-cloud, things change in clouds. So the AWS from last year is not the same as today's AWS. So you have to yeah, keep yeah, on, on track what they're doing, which is a lot harder if you have to do this for a lot of clouds. And also architecture moves. So, so the best architecture is something different tomorrow than today because, oh, there's a new service. Are we still talking about Lambda functions or are we every, um, developing everything in step functions now? So how do you approach, oh, there's a better way now. Should we re-implement everything? Yeah, like the keeping, keeping up to date with the cloud is, I'll just say interesting because you've different, you've different people, different personas. The graduates coming in from university are actually the ones that pick it up the fastest because you're like, here's your first exposure to AWS and this is how you build and they run with it. So it can almost embarrass a lot of the more senior engineers because fresh eyes, one slice of the cloud and they get it in one go. But then as you move, as you keep things running and as you stay in AWS longer, it's a case of, like you mentioned, oh, hold on. I deployed this to EC2, which was best practice four years ago. Whereas now if I say EC2, everybody will cringe because that's not how we deploy this anymore. And it goes from amazing to not quite best practice to, ooh, (laughs) a lot quicker than you'd expect. And that's where you really do need people in the organization who will go out and not just like read the blogs and go on Twitter and things, but actually will go out to conferences and things and go into community events and talk to everybody else who are building solutions like you are building, because that is the way that you will be able to form a good relationship with the likes of the AWS developer advocates. And those people are amazing. They will tell you if you talk to them and you're like, hey, I'm thinking about using EventBridge for this. And they'll go, oh, that's a great idea because we're actually going to launch. And then they'll they'll tell you stuff you wouldn't normally know. So I, I think that the best way to stay up to date in the cloud is through connections and through knowing people and trying to, to form those networks. Now, once you form those networks, how do you get that information out to your org? Because your org is usually massive. And I, I don't think, I told you earlier that we have these patterns that are reproducible. So the first way is to build a pattern. And you can go, there you go, everybody. I built you a pattern. You can use this now. This is why you would use it. And you can write it in the docs for the pattern, all the use cases, pros and cons. But also, I think a skill that has sort of, not been lost, but has been underappreciated is the art of writing. And I think it in an org, you need somebody who's going to take all these thoughts and write them down. Uh, most organizations have a tool for sharing like blog posts internally or those kind of writings. So put it there and allow people to discuss it, whether it's even just in Slack or whatever. And that way you can kick off these these conversations about it. But I do think you need a person dedicated to just stand on top of it because otherwise 
everyone is relearning the same thing at the same time and your organization will tend to burn out because and it will be everybody at once because they'll all be in the same place. Yeah, but how do you then tackle that you don't, so that you still implement new things and features instead of upgrading all your microservices every day? Yeah, and that's that's where the well-architected reviews that I mentioned come in. That if you if you have a group of architects that are all well kept up to date on what what the current best is and what's coming up, then they can go out and do those well-architected reviews and be like, "Hey, I've noticed that you're still using whatever. This needs upgraded." And if the team if the team says, "I don't have time for that," then an organization needs a mechanism to be able to go <clears throat> red flag. Architecture thinks this needs re-architected. You need to find time to do this versus because in most organizations, if you leave it up to a business call to refactor architecture, the new business feature is always the thing to add. And that's where people end up in this state of stuff that hasn't been touched in 20 years. So that's that's why I always say most of my solutions are actually human connections when it comes to keeping things up to date. It's a it's a touch point in a well-architected review. It's a Slack message. It's it's meeting someone in person where you're able to have that conversation you can we are also working on some of the stuff um christy prald has a team in liberty so she's one of the other heroes and she's working on a thing that actually will give advice on your workloads in real time so if you if you've got your working solution and you think it's awesome and then all of a sudden we realize that something better comes out this automated dashboard will just come out and be like ping And I'll say, like, there is now a better way to implement this. Click here for more details. And I'll specifically relate to your workload and link to solutions. So we're sort of, we're trying to do the people side as well as the automated telemetry of what you're building. Yeah, that, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I think that's the enterprise thing that business features and you're tentatively lagging behind. And then these this is where the reviews come in versus in a startup world, you need to slow down people from changing the architecture uh, two times a week instead of please just build a product we need to go live we don't need to have the latest edition of this feature just because it's out there yeah exactly no definitely not recommending that you you need some sanity to it of maybe you're upgrading because they've released a new version of the service and it's 40 cheaper and doing that change will actually bring in more revenue than releasing a new feature those are the conversations that you want to be having yeah Sounds great. So I think this has been great. Um, where can people find more about you online? So you can check me out on Twitter. Uh, I am NI Developer. In fact, if you just type that into Google, I'm that username on pretty much everything. So you'll find me on all the social media. That's perfect. Um, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. All right, folks. That's it for today. I'm Thorsten Hülger, and I hope you join me again for next time for Cloud Automation Weekly.